Hello everybody and Kia ora. Welcome to today's webinar um, on the national harmonization of test methods used in asphalt performance um, specifications. We have um, 300 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Crossroads and I will be moderating today's session together with Jason Jones um, from Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads. Jason was the project manager of this project and he will be moderating um, the Q&A part of the session. I would like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Ostrots is based in Sydney uh, and so today I'm on the land of the Garigal people of the Euro Nation. I pay my respects to all this past, present and emerging and my deep and ongoing connection to the land. A bit about Austroads. Um, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project uh, we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Programme, which is managed by Ross Guppy. A bit of housekeeping. Our presenter will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The slides and the report can be downloaded from the handout section um, of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems, um, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session um, via your email registration usually helps. This session has been recorded um, and we will send you the link um, to the recording when it's available um, on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also find Ostrots in your podcast app. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers for today. Our main presenter today is Joe Grobler. Joe is a specialist pavement engineer and leader for the Australian Road Research Board's Smarter Construction Outcomes Portfolio. Joe has 20 years experience in pavement and material investigations, mechanistic modelling, detailed design, uh, material specifications and construction support. For the Q&A, we will be joined by Dr. Didier Baudin. Didier is a principal technology leader at the Australian Road Research Board. His research focuses, focuses on uh, rust um, rot resistance uh, characterization, modeling and prediction of unbound um, granular materials response. Welcome to our speakers and over to you, Joe. Thank you. Katerina. Okay, let's get this going. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, before I start with, with our main presentation, I'll just give you an introduction to the team that assisted in delivering this project. So, um, as mentioned before, Jason Jones was the Ostroads project manager. Myself, Joe, um, led the project and we have Dr. Didier Bowden um, as the ARP quality manager. The um, project itself was delivered under the auspices of the um, Ostroads Asphalt Research Technical Group, represented by the various um, people that you can see on the graph there, and then also industry representatives um, on that group. So a big thank you to everyone's contribution. Background, why did we do what we what we're presenting here today. Um, so as most of you are probably familiar that um, a specification in, in Australia, specifically asphalt specifications and New Zealand, are mainly recipe based with some performance requirements. So this means we typically specify the constituent materials that needs to go into that asphalt mix, such as the binder type, the aggregates and, and the like, fillers and, and the like. We then have some volumetric um, requirements as well, whether it be air voids content, voids filled with binder and so forth, and a minimum binder content. Um, there's typically a grading envelope specified for the, for the aggregates, and that's the recipe component of the specification. 
And then depending on the road jurisdiction or the transport jurisdiction, um, some specifications also include some supplementary performance properties, whether it be modulus, fatigue, rutting or stri stripping. But this does vary between the various dis um, uh, jurisdictions. The challenge we have with these recipe-based specifications is we know that they're not very conducive to innovation and or optimization of our asphalt mixes especially the significant changes that we've undergone in the industry over the last couple of years regarding the use of um, recycled materials, new binders and the like. Um, so if they're not that, that well suited to it, suited to it what, what's our alternative? And that's really um, looking towards more performance-based specifications. And um, there's a couple of options there. So you've got the first two that's typically end product or performance specifications. So essentially, you measure the performance over time, so after the asphalt's been placed, um, whether it's at the end of the defects liability period or at the end of the contract or over a period of time, whether it's an extended performance period. Um, but the specific um, type of document that we're um, looking at here today is more around performance-related or performance-based specifications. So there's a, a subtle difference between those two types of specifications. But it's essentially we relate some form of material characteristic with the fundamental properties that predict performance, or we relate a fundamental engineering property that we measure in the lab with um, to predict a field performance. So that's what we're um, talking about today. And for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to be referencing performance-based specifications. So what's the benefit of these performance-related slash base specifications? So it does provide you the ability to optimize the performance of asphalt mixes based on your available materials and your local environment and your in-service requirements. Um, it also facilitates the introduction of new and innovative technologies, which would have otherwise been difficult with our more traditional recipe-based specifications. Um, it gives you a better ability to, to use local materials where possible to achieve a desired level of performance. And also, um, quite importantly, it provides the, the designer, the mixed designer, as well as the um, road agency with a better understanding of the performance risks associated with a um, specific asphalt mix design for a particular application. So it's to inform risk as well. And then um, the holy grail is the ability to link that asphalt mix design with your structural pavement design, which again allows for um, greater design optimization to occur. So if you can, you know, use those asphalt mix properties in your structural pavement design, you've got a strong link there, and um, and that's very difficult with with your more traditional base specifications. So um, there's clear benefits in adopting a performance specification. And as such, um, industry and, and Ostroads has been driving the development of a new Ostroads performance-based asphalt specification. And we, um, it's been a journey. So there's, uh, it's been, we've been going for two um, over two stages now. So the first stage was originally focused on developing a performance um, specification framework. So essentially, what would a performance specification likely look like? and what sort of um, shortcomings or gaps in our knowledge do we have in order to implement such a specification. So that was stage two that was completed a couple of years ago, and you can see the reference to the report that's available on the Osteroads website. Stage two is the project we're currently talking about today, um, then focused on the national harmonization of a set of performance test methods that we can use in these specifications going forward. And we'll discuss that a bit more further. And then stage three, which hasn't commenced yet, is scheduled to start um, in this financial year. Um, we'll be focused on actually developing that performance-based specification for implementation. But today we'll focus on stage two. If we have a look at the previous work that was done, as I mentioned during stage one, there was a concept performance-based specification framework that was developed. So essentially setting that um, framework for what type, what performance measures we'll be checking as part of our, our mixed design process. 
and um, based on a desktop review and a literature review of practices elsewhere and, and um, what we know is important for the performance of asphalt mixes, we developed this framework that's focused on uh, workability, uh, moisture sensitivity, permanent deformation, flexural modulus and fatigue, permeability, resistance to raveling, and then handling and durability. And we also had a look at what's the test methods um, currently available uh, for those different performance measures and if there's any shortcomings with those tests or whether new tests need to be developed. It's important to note here that the intent of um, these um, performance measures is not that it will necessarily apply to every single mix in every application. It'll very much depend on um, your mix type and where the mix will be used within the pavement structure. So for instance, in some applications, you might not need to include a fatigue requirement depending on the mix in the pavement structure. And in other, for some mix types, you don't necessarily have to include an asphalt particle loss. So it'll be very much mix um, type and application specific. In terms of the project scope, so following stage one, this stage two project, APT 6123, it was really aimed at developing a new and updating existing test methods that we can use in an asphalt performance-based specification going forward. The scope included a review of international, um, local and international sample conditioning practices for performance testing. We had a look at the gyratory compaction test method. Um, there was a need to develop a new permeability um, test method for asphalt, a new verification procedure for flexural stiffness and fatigue performance. Uh, we had a look at possibly improving the wheel tracking test to better distinguish between the deformation resistance of different asphalt mixes in the lab, and we'll talk about that a bit later. We also updated several test methods, including the Ostrode's moisture sensitivity test and the wheel tracking verification procedure. And then lastly, we collated available flexural modulus fatigue and wheel tracking test data from industry and member agencies for locally manufactured mixes to inform um, specification limits um, going forward. So we didn't undertake any additional testing. We just gathered data that was already available and analyzed that data to, to give an indication of what some of these limits might look like going forward. Okay, well, importantly also, just before we get into the project, the intent of a performance-based specification is not necessarily to replace all our current asphalt specifications for routine works or traditional projects, contracts. It's, it's really, it's envisaged that initially, it'll be focused on your higher risk, um, larger style projects where, um, where there's a need for a performance-based specification, or if you'd look to um, introduce new and innovative materials but not necessarily as a replacement for all current specifications. So first off, we had a look at sample preparation. So this is critical for any type of laboratory testing, whether you do a performance test or a conventional um, um, volumetric testing um, to ensure that it's as representative as field conditions as possible. So we had a look at how we condition our samples prior to to undertaking these performance tests. And um, in Australia and New Zealand, we use the ASNZS 2891.2.1 test method to condition our samples prior to testing. Um, interestingly to note that um, conditioning protocol was originally developed for unmodified bitumens. And as we know, we're currently using much more um, polymer modified binders in your heavier duty applications. The conditioning protocol is really there to simulate short-term binder viscosity after approximately give or take two years in service. It is not an exact science, but it's really there to cover your manufacturing and construction process and the oxidation that occurs in the binder over that short-term period. We don't currently have a um, nationally accepted long-term aging protocol that's being used. So that's something to consider as well for some of these performance tests that um, you know, occur over a longer period of time, like a fatigue test, we only start to see damage later down the track. Um, we compared our um, local conditioning method against uh, methods being used internationally and more specifically against the European standard and the ASHTO standard. And you can see there that both those standards include a long-term 
conditioning um, protocol as well for some tests. Insofar as the short-term conditioning, um, we typically allow for, well, we allow for an hour in an oven at a nominated standard temperature, whereas the other two methods has got a four-hour period at 135 degrees C. Um, our hour is shorter than the four hours, so our conditioning period is shorter, but we do condition at a longer, um, uh, at a higher test temperature. In terms of long-term conditioning, like I said, we don't currently have anything locally. Um, standard practice internationally is to take a specimen, put it in an oven at, and, uh, at 85 degrees for 120 hours, and then undertake your testing. Based on our review, um, we found that there would be a fair bit of work um, involved to develop a long-term protocol um, conditioning protocol for um, Australian and New Zealand conditions and it wasn't necessarily warranted for a performance-based specification at this stage. Still some, um, you know, important to consider that down the track, but as part of this project, it's, we didn't identify it as being critical. We did identify some recommended improvements to the current uh, conditioning um, um, test method that we do have, um, just to um, reduce some of the variability we can experience. Um, so have a nominated um, layer thickness in this, in this um, conditioning pan during testing, preheating some of that testing equipment, and then also standardize whether we use um, conditioning the samples in a pan or in the compaction molds. So that's some recommended improvements. In terms of the compaction of asphalt specimens using the gyratory compaction, and the idea is that this test will be used um, to determine or to ensure adequate workability of the mixes in service. As many of you would know, in Australia, we have two devices, the gyro pack and the server pack that's being used. Um, the actual specification is equipment blind, so you can use either the gyro pack or the server pack currently. Um, several studies have in the past shown though that um, you do get different compaction outcomes between the two different devices due to some bending compliant issues with, um, with the gyro pack. So that presents a challenge. Um, luckily for New Zealand, they've all standardized on the server pack, so they don't necessarily have, have the same compliance issues. Um, however, um, during this project, um, industry and, and Ostroads was informed that um, our bespoke gyropack devices will no longer be supplied to meet our local test method. The market's just not big enough for that. So um, that presented industry with, with, a, uh, with a challenge going forward if we don't have access to our local um, our gyropack to meet our Australian standard um, compaction requirements. As a result, AFPA prepared a position paper that considered different compaction standards internationally and recommended that we transition towards the superpaved gyratory compaction configurations and settings. Um, and there's some reasons, justification for that decision. Um, following that presentation, the OSROADS member agencies agreed to transition to the superpaved compaction method. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So that was an important part of this project. Um, like I said before, there was a need to develop some new Ostroads test methods. And the first one that came up as a result of the gyro pack no longer being available in future, um, we had to develop a new gyratory compaction test method. Importantly, um, the decision was, was clear at the time that um, we weren't planning on changing any of the volumetric properties of our current mixes the member agencies felt that they were happy with the performance of the current mixes. So when we go to a new compaction standard, ideally the volumetric property should, should remain the same. So we developed a new Ostroads test method, ATM212, that's been published based on the testing requirements in ASHTO T312. So essentially your compaction um, criteria and the sample preparation and conditioning methods based on our um, standard ASNZS2891 um, method that I discussed previously. So our compaction testing requirements based on ASHTO and our um, conditioning requirements remains the same. 
And the main difference between our standard, our current standard method of gyratory compaction compared to the new Ostrode's method would be that increase in vertical loading stress from 240 kPa to 600 kPa. Importantly, there's a change in the gyratory angle as well, going from 2 degrees down to 1.16 degrees in the new method. And then also worth noting that there's a change in the specimen diameter as well to align with um, the practice in, in the USA, going from 100 mil um, diameter specimens up to 150 millimeters. So importantly to note that these changes will result in different compaction outcomes on the same specimen. And there is a separate Ostrodes project currently underway to um, determine the effect of, of these um, different um, compaction criteria on the volumetric properties of locally manufactured mixes. So just worth noting that that will result in a change. But again, the intention is that from a volumetric point of view, um, not to see a big change in the in the current mixes. The second test method um, that's included in the specification framework is uh, asphalt permeability. And there's currently not a national test method available for that. Um, so a new Osroads method was developed based on the principles in the TMR and transport for New South Wales tests. So Q304 and P655 for those of you that's familiar with those tests. So it essentially involves a laboratory permeometer that you can see on the right hand side there, basic device, and you've got a falling water head and you measure the time for that, that water to, um, to um, flow through your specimen. You can either determine your permeability at a single air voids content or at a range of different air voids. And for mixed design purposes, we're proposing to, um, to develop a air voids um, permeability relationship. So testing your permeability at different air voids. And then based on that relationship, you can specify a, a, a permeability level at a, um, any given um, or required air voids content. So that test method has also been published and is available for use. We've also developed a new verification procedure for the four-point bending test. In 2016, there was a major revision to the way we um, undertake the four-point bending test in, in Australia and New Zealand. And um, AGPT 274 at the time was published. And it's essentially based on the European test method. But over the um, you know, past five, six years, there's been some lessons learned with using the new test method and the need was identified to develop a verification procedure to make sure that the testing equipment's function properly, the con test configuration is set up properly and that everything's working the way it should and we do get the um, outcomes, the test outcomes the way it should, similar to what we have for our wheel tracking test. So we developed a new procedure to verify the testing equipment, the configuration, we provided some reference beam properties and um, and how you would then go about verifying the test equipment. Essentially, it comes down to you've got a reference beam with a known modulus and a known phase angle that you then run through the test and you check the outputs from the test against those known values and they need to be within a certain um, limit so that um, you can demonstrate it's it's working all properly. So that's another procedure that's been published and available for use. A large part of this project was focused on the wheel tracking test method. Um, so we currently in Australia and New Zealand again undertake wheel tracking testing using a small scale laboratory wheel tracker device in accordance with um, AGPT 231, which is now ATM 231. However, for a performance-based specification, it's likely to be used in heavy-duty applications. Um, several transport agencies raised concern regarding the existing method's ability to distinguish between the performance of different asphalt mixes, specifically in high-demand applications. Not for your standard-type applications, but really in those high-demand applications, say at heavily trafficked intersections in hot climates. 
um, they felt it wasn't distinguishing enough. And we've got some examples of that. Um, some of the challenges with the current wheel tracking test, if you're not familiar with it, um, you've, got, um, you've got a wheel and a specimen table con fully confined, and you basically either move the table up um, forwards and backwards or the um, loaded wheel forwards and backwards, and you measure the rut depth. Challenge with the current test is that um, in most scenarios or most tests, it really only measures the primary creep and the secondary creep of the deformation behavior. And we very rarely see any mixes going into that tertiary creep failure mode. Um, it's also difficult to assess because of that difficult to assess changes in aggregate structure. And you've essentially got a small wheel with a small load plus full confinement gives you small deformations for heavy duty mixes. And that becomes a challenge when we're considering the repeatability of the test. So as you can see there on the, on the bottom graph, we've got some available test data. And this is quite a, a significant data set that we show there, where the rut depth in the wheel tracking test varied from 1.3 millimeters for an A15E polymer modified asphalt mix to 2.4 millimeters for a C320, um, for a mix including a conventional C320 binder. So you might say, well, that's going from 1.3 to 2.4 millimeters. What's the issue? Now, a previous asteroid study um, that's been reported on has done some repeatability test using the, the wheel tracking device. And they found that um, for free uh, replicate specimens, the um, rut depth varied up to, there was a maximum rut depth variance of 2.5 millimeters. Same mix, same sample, just three different specimens. So if you're looking at a difference between 1.3 and 2.4, and you've got a repeatability of 2.5 millimeters, then that, that's an issue. Um, also, a previous AFPA proficiency study um, also tested the rut, um, the rut depth using the current test method in various laboratories, and they found a standard deviation in the rut depth for the same mix across laboratories of uh, different rabbit laboratories of 1.3 millimeters. So if we start dealing with these very low rut depths, um, repeatability becomes an issue and then you can understand why there's concerns around the test method's ability to distinguish between the performance of different mixes. So some options um, we considered as part of this wheel tracking um, study is you can either look at increasing the load, you can look at increasing the temperature or the number of load cycles or change the level of confinement all to try and make the test more discerning and more um, essentially get uh, higher deformation results as well that you that you can distinguish between the different um, performance of the different mixes or binder types. Firstly, we started off with looking at the confinement in the device. As I mentioned before, currently the slab is fully defined at the bottom, um, confined at the bottom and the side, so it can't move anywhere um, apart from up. Um, during the wheel tracking test. And the question mark is how realistic is that full confinement compared to actual field conditions? So some previous work done, especially by uh, Dr. Saleh in New Zealand, um, developed a new test procedure to vary, uh, vary the level of confinement in the wheel tracking test, which they believe is more representative of field conditions. And that test procedure was the, published as ASTM D8292. So as part of this project, we did some exploratory research testing to see whether changing that level of confinement um, would be uh, appropriate to and, and assist with better dis uh, distinguishing between the performance of these different mixes. So we've done some exploratory testing using um, no confinement which if you have a look at ASTM, that, um, they suggest that zero confinement might be applicable to situations like an outer lane um, with narrow shoulders, where you can consider um, zero comply, um, confinement. So we've uh, modified the wheel tracking device to do that testing. And um, what we found was, we certainly found that it's more severe than a fully confined um, um, scenario. But we also found there was some very large longitudinal cracking that occurred at the bottom of the slab, which was surprising. 
So that raised the question whether zero confinement is adequate or uh, realistic, um, more so whether zero um, confinement is realistic for field conditions also. And, you know, you'd likely to um, be somewhere in between full confinement and zero confinement. Nonetheless, um, we did some finite element modeling to determine the effect of confinement on the wheel tracking in, in, in the test setup. And we, we showed that, yes, confinement does have play a role in the current test setup. But uh, um, the degree to what it plays a role wasn't conclusive in the uh, modeling that we undertook. And um, given the concerns raised surrounding the reliability of the zero confinement and the uncertainty of what the actual confinement level is in the field, um, ARTG uh, agreed that instead of pursuing this line of investigation further, we would rather have a look initially at the increasing the test cycles or the test temperature. Also keeping in mind that this would require modifications to the current wheel tracking device, which is not ideal given that um, many road agencies and um, asphalt laboratories is already heavily invested in the standard equipment. So we parked that. It did show promise, but um, for further investigation, potentially down the track, not as part of this project. So from there, we looked at increasing the temperature in the test and the number of cycles. So currently, the um, test standard temperature is 60 degrees C and um, 10,000 passes. Um, two passes equals one cycle. And we looked at increasing that to 65 degrees and 60,000 passes. Now, from discussions with um, equipment suppliers and our experience with, with the device itself, um, we felt that 65 is probably the upper range that you can run the equipment at. Um, anything above that, you might be pushing its limits. And then 60,000 passes is something that um, is, is a parameter that's currently being used for EME mixes and in heavy-duty airport and port scenarios. So um, that was certainly something worth looking at. So what we've done is we've taken two mixes, a heavy-duty and a medium-duty asphalt mix, and we uh, manufactured it with four different binders, a conventional bitumen C320, a A35P binder, which is a plastomer, your more commonly used A15E binder, and then a heavily modified polymer um, binder, A5E. Manufactured specimen and, and tested it in the wheel tracker at the different passes and, and temperatures. And the graph there shows you the outcome of the heavy duty mix. So going from 10, um, uh, from 60 degrees to 65 degrees, keeping it at the standard 10,000 passes, the two graphs on the left, you can see that it didn't have any appreciable um, effect on the rut depth, um, apart from the conventional binder. Um, but you're looking at values increasing from 1 to 1.2 and 1.2 to 1.5, which is very minor considering the concerns we talked about previously or earlier uh, regarding the um, repeatability of the test. If we then increase the number of cycles from the standard 10,000 or passes, I should say, from the standard 10,000 passes to 60,000 passes and increase it from 60 degrees to 65 degrees, we start to see a, a more pronounced difference between the um, different mixes. Again, no surprises, a significant increase in the rut depth for the conventional bitumen, but also some increases for the for the um, pol other polymer modified mixes, except for the A5E binder, which remained fairly stable, even at the, uh, well, not fairly, which remained stable at, at the high number of load passes and, and temperature. But again, if we have a look at these numbers, they're still very, very low. You know, you're going to, from a, uh, for say the A35P binder, you go from a one millimeter to a 1.4 millimeter rut. And for the A15E from a 1.2 to 1.9 millimeter rut. Again, very small differences. Considering repeatability of the test, it's, it's, it's not conclusive. The one thing it did show, though, is anecdotally, we've got experience where the A5E binder did perform the best in a particular field application at a heavily trafficked intersection 
where previously they've tried an A35P binder and an A15E binder in the mix and it didn't perform well in service, where they actually replaced it with an A5E binder, it did perform very well. So at least the testing does does align with that. But And there is a change in, in RUTLET, but whether the change is significant enough to be confident in the outcomes, that, that still remains a question. So in terms of the deformation study, and we found similar results for the medium AC10 mix as well, which is reported in the um, included in the technical report. Um, so findings from our deformation study is increasing both the test temperature and number of cycles um, is likely to increase the magnitude of deformation in the test and can potentially be um, used to better distinguish between the rut resistance of the different mix types. But it is important to consider that even at those higher um, passes and, and temperature, we still have to consider that increase in the in the context um, of the repeatability and the reproducibility of the test. Um, as a result, we could consider increasing the test parameters for heavy duty applications. But at the time, ARTG felt that um, there wasn't enough evidence to support a change to the standard conditions for heavy-duty mixtures um, at this point in time. However, the test method does allow you to change the standard parameters. You just need to note it. So you could still increase your number of cycles and test temperatures, similar to what we're doing for EME mixes and ports and airport pavements. Um, to assess that that effect, but if you do so, just consider it in light of the repeatability and the reproducibility of the test method itself. We've also undertaken some amendments to OSROAD's test methods. Um, these were pretty minor amendments for most of them and shouldn't have a big impact on, on the testing. I suppose the two to highlight here is the deformation resistance. So um, changes to the deformation to resistance test, so the wheel tracking test, ATM231, specifically to allow for devices that apply a moving load to the specimen. So currently this test method is actually set up um, to only allow devices where the specimen table moves, so your standard Cooper type devices, but we know there's other devices in service at the moment used by different laboratories where the actual wheel moves. So the test method now allows for either of the devices to be used, Importantly, there are still some concerns that you might not get the same result using the devices, and there's some commentary around that in the test method. The other change is to the stripping potential of the asphalt, ATM232, um, including the freeze-4 conditioning component of that test now as a standard requirement, and you can opt out rather than opt in to use that freeze-4 conditioning um, cycle. And then also minor updates to the verification procedure for the wheel tracking test device and the um, flex standard flexural stiffness and fatigue performance test. As I mentioned before, as part of our project also, we've gathered available performance data from industry and member agencies um, based on their tests to see if we can inform the specification limits for a future um, performance-based specification. So we collated wheel tracking modulus and fatigue resist resistance data, and we analyzed those data and came up with some typical or indicative values. Important to note that especially for the modulus and fatigue data, there were some limitations in what we could do with the data, given that um, they weren't necessarily all using the same test method or the same sample preparation procedures. So some were based on plant mixed laboratory compacted specimens, other were based on laboratory mixed lab compacted specimens, and we know there's a difference between the two. Um, and it also didn't necessarily cover um, all the mixes that's currently being used, um, both in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so it was only where data was available. So that's some limitations to note. Um, but nonetheless, these are some indicative values if you don't have any other information to start with when you're setting your limits, and we recommend that you do some further validation testing though, um, but something to start with. And this is reported in the, in the document. We've done the same for our available uh, wheel tracking data and looked at it by mix type and by binder type. 
And for this, we had quite a large data set. And based on, um, so this is data for locally manufactured mixes, both in Australia and New Zealand. We came up with some revised um, limits in part 4B um, of the Osterage Guide to Pavement Technology. So currently, part 4B recommends for a superior performance to have below 2.5 mil rut. Uh, we're recommending that that um, be taken up to, um, oh, sorry, um, current limits is 3.5 mil. We recommend that to be dropped down to 2.5 mil for medium performance going from 8 to 13 currently in the guide down to 5 to 8, so tightening those limits down. And this is um, based on, on data for locally manufactured mixes. Summary of findings in our future work. So we've made some um, proposed amendments to the conditioning um, test method that we used prior to testing. Um, we developed a couple of new Osteroids test methods, so the gyratory compaction method, the permeability test, and a new verification procedure for four-point bending testing. We updated several existing Osteroids test methods, which are shown there. We had a look at the wheel tracking test method, identified issues with precision of the current method and its ability to distinguish between the performance of different mixes in the lab. We did identify some opportunities to change the test temperature number of cycles or even the level of confinement, but further work would be required. And then we've established some indicative performance limits for rutting modulus and fatigue resistance. Further work. Um, Again, as mentioned before, um, there's a, um, a need to validate some of those indicative modulus and fatigue performance limits um, that we established based on additional testing. Given that the asphalt permeability and moist um, asphalt permeability um, is a new test, we recommend to do establish performance limits for that as well based on locally manufactured mixes. Um, including for the moisture sensitivity and workability as well, um, which wasn't included as part of this project. So we didn't gather any data for those tests as part of this project. Uh, we believe there's still a need to investigate potential alternative test methods to determine the permanent deformation resistance of asphalt mixes used in specifically high demand severe environments, um, investigate options to include potentially a reflective cracking performance limit in future performance-related asphalt specifications. So currently we've got the fatigue test, but it might be a need to, to look at a more general crack test as well, something like either the Texas overlay test or the IDLC test, or there's a myriad of other tests to consider. We believe there's a need to develop appropriate quality assurance and quality control procedures for performance-based asphalt specification going forward, and then to develop precision statements for the various performance tests, given some of the concerns we found with the wheel tracking device in terms of repeatability and reproducibility, it would be good to have um, precision statements in these test methods going forward. And then finally, developing a, a performance-based specification document that can be used for implementation. I think that brings it to the end of me talking. So I will hand over now to Jason um, to moderate the questions and answers and ask um, Didier to join us um, for the for the Q&A session. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks very much for that, Joe. That was a great presentation. So yeah, we've certainly got a, a few questions from the, um, from the audience today. So I might just um, go through and um, pick up a few that we can um, talk through. Um, so we had one question around, um, so for mixes containing A10E binder, so this relates to slide 23. Um, do we have rut data for A10E binder? If not, assume it's lower than 1.3 millimetres. Um, yes, we did receive some um, data for, for, uh, for A10E. We didn't include an A10E um, binder in our deformation study testing. We felt that we wanted to cover a range of different performances. So we included a conventional bitumen A35P, A15E and A5E. So for there, we felt we've had enough of a range of different binder performances um, to do our wheel tracking study. But as part of our data collection process, we did um, 
I believe yeah, there was 18E binder um, results included in that. And we might go to that summary of the of the wheel tracking data, um, Jason, and, and 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 just bring that slide up. Sure. It is. Let's see which one that was. What slide? Are you bringing it up? No, I wasn't. I thought you were. One. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I'm not driving anymore. I think Ekaterina is no, driving. If okay. you can take us to A31, and if we have a look there. Um, no, that's not breaking down by binder class, um, but it might be that, yeah, then it's covered in the report. Yeah, certainly from TMR's experiences, um, you know, usually the ATE is a little bit less than what you'd get from an A15E binder, so that's um, that's sort of fairly common. But the specific magnitude is a bit hard to um, say. You know, now I guess we could provide some feedback if necessary as part of the um, um, the comments. Um, yeah, so just the next. Yeah, just to add to that, Jason, as well with the ATE is one of the challenges we find in the wheel tracking test is that asymptote. So you'll find there's probably in the wheel tracking test itself, there's not that big of a difference in the rut depth results between say an A10E and A15E or and even A5E because of that asymptote sort of flats out and, and then you just don't get any further deformation. Thanks, Joe. We might move on to the next question. So this mm -hmm. is uh, a question um, around fatigue testing. Has any investigation been carried out on alternative test methods? Uh, i.e. ideal CT test, which is becoming common in the US. The current beam testing method takes too long and is costly, which can reduce appetite to innovate. Yep. So um, originally in the stage one, so not a part of this project, but in stage one, we looked at different test methods for the various performance tests. And at the time, we decided that given the experience um, that both Australia and New Zealand have with flexural fatigue testing. Um, we've got a standard test method already for it. It's included in some specifications already. And the fact that our pavement design system is based on flexural fatigue testing. So there's a direct link between our fatigue test and our pavement design. The decision was made to, uh, to stay with the flexural fatigue test for the time being. Given the experience and the link it has with pavement design, we acknowledge there's certainly other type of fatigue tests available um, that could be considered going forward, but you've got to cons um, weigh up the benefit of losing that link with your pavement design and then also um, potentially reinvesting in new equipment and, and changing test methods over and, and losing that um, historic experience with, with the numbers you're getting from your flexural fatigue test. But there are certainly options going forward. Sounds good. Thanks, Joe. Um, so next one's related to slide 19. Um, it says the, the height of specimen for 150 millimetres is 85 millimetres. Uh, so that's the 150 mil diameter specimens. It seems too high. If you, if you use the same um, sample to test modulus in a matter machine, um, any issues to set height of 75 to 80 millimetres? Are we, sorry, just to clarify though, is the question whether the 85 moles is too high or is 150 moles too high? Because currently it's 85 yeah. moles. Yeah, so I'm assuming it's around the fact we're moving from the 85 up to the 115 mil specimen height, and I assume that's what the question relates to. Yes, yes. So that that's something that ha will have to be considered as part of any um, any changes to some of the other um, test properties, such as TSR, mod, um, resilient modulus. If you're going to continue doing that, it it could affect those those test properties. But it is the standard um specimen um dimensions that's currently being used in the in in the US so i can't necessarily foresee a challenge with transitioning towards that as long as we realize that that there will be a, a potential change to some of those those properties Lydia, anything you wanted to add to to the actual test and, and the ability to test 115 millimeters high 
not uh, particularly apart from the load magnitude, which was, might uh, be higher with um, longer cores, but um, nothing That's more right. than that. Yeah, I suppose there's also ability if, if there's a limitation with the test equipment um, to, to do it in the matter device, um, you know, you can always then then cut it down to size to to match the, um, you know, to, to be accommodated. Yeah, so I guess that's probably an area a little bit to work through in terms of are we going to keep using the um, resilient modulus test and if so, mm -hmm. how, and then how will it be implemented in terms of um, that sample preparation side of things. Uh, so the next question was around quality control. So um, this might be more related to where we're going in terms of future elements of um, this project mm. in terms of its implementation. So it says, how would the quality control be implemented if the methodology is incorporated into projects? So from practical terms, will the laboratories associated with astronaut production plants have to buy a gyratory compactor? Uh, what is the referential cost of the equipment? Mm. Yes. I suppose short answer is watch the space because that's what the next stage is going to um, focus on. One of the key components of the next stage, which is currently um, hasn't commenced yet, will be looking at developing quality assurance guidelines for a performance-based specification. Um, something to consider though, and that's I suppose what will be considered as part of the next stage is um, you know, these are uh, performance requirements during the mixed design process. Then you need to decide whether you actually need to do those performance tests on an ongoing basis as part of production control, or do you rely then during production control just on any variations in the binder content and constituent materials and whether that's adequate to, con um, to ensure that you get a performance outcome. But that's, that's very much what stage two, our stage three is gonna be looking at. I, I certainly don't foresee the need for um, advanced, um, you, you know, uh, performance testing equipment in every production control lab because that that just wouldn't be feasible. No, that's great. Thanks, Joe. So the next uh, question we had was with the introduction of alternative wheel tracking devices in the market, i.e., dual wheel tracking, has there been any work undertaken to confirm the differences between the Cooper? Wheel tracker and the DWT. Not at a national level. It's something that we we are aware of um, that there's a potential difference between the devices, um, or, or not the device. The, yeah, between the devices. But um, at this stage, the test method requires you that you note what type of device was used in the test. And then it's for the road agencies to this, you know, to to either um, specify the type of device to be used, or do additional work to identify whether there is a difference between the two devices and how they accommodate those potential differences in their in their specifications. But no, there hasn't been any work done at a national level yet, and I suspect that it, it, it's something that would be worthwhile looking at down the track. Sure, thanks Joe. So the next question was around, um, I think it's slide 13. Um, so it sort of says, what um, vehicle travel speed corresponds to 50 uh, microseconds loading time as per AGPT to T234? I think that's actually meant to be related to the um, modulus test and the micro strain, which is sort of the actual yeah loading strain levels. So I'm not sure if you've got anything further to add on that one, Joe. Yeah, yeah that's right. So that that's the um that, that's the strain level, you're right. So that that's not the um the frequency. So the the modulus test actually gets done at different frequencies at that fixed strain level. And then you can use the different frequencies to get your master curve that you can use to determine your modulus at any given design speed. And the 50 uh, micro strain chosen for the test is to ensure that it's low enough so you don't create any damage while you do the um, do the testing at different frequencies. Sure, that's great. Thanks, Joe. Um, so 
Uh, I got a question around the compaction, so it's around um, the potential use of martial compaction, so it's around slide 16. You know, um, I guess probably question why wasn't martial compaction considered as part of the um, process? It might have been a slightly different slide. Yes, so I mean we have to standardise. So they uh, originally the intent was to so so one of the main focuses of the project is is to standardise on a compaction um, standard and um, nationally and um, based on feedback we've received from the various member agencies and that um, gyratory compaction is was was the preferred um, choice to standardise on. And also, you know, there's, there's certainly the um, internationally we're moving and, and have moved towards gyratory compaction. And um, so there's benefits in, in, in adopting gyratory compaction over, um, over martial compaction. And there's several other studies that shows the differences and the benefits and that between the two. But for a national standard, it was decided that um, most agencies use gyratory compaction and hence, um, you know, we've, we've harmonise to that. No, that's that's right. No, thanks for that, Joe. Um, so the last one is probably a little, maybe a little bit off topic for this um, subject. So in Australia, we do not use a rutting criteria in mechanistic pavement design procedure. Basically, rely on asphalt mixed design empirical characteristics to satisfy the rutting criteria. In your opinion, would it be beneficial to consider the rutting criteria? On top of the asphalt layer in mechanistic pavement design. Mm. Yeah, look, now this is certainly a question that 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 comes up quite regularly, and 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 one of the, uh, I suppose, limitations in our mechanistic design um, procedure at 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 this stage. I suppose a response to that would be, and Didier, I wouldn't mind hearing your thoughts as well as. Um, rutting doesn't govern the thickness, so our mechanistic um, design procedure at the moment is focused on getting enough structural strength in the pavement, so thickness, whereas rutting doesn't govern govern um, that. It's more it's fatigue and asphalt pavements. So from a from a thickness design per, um, perspective, I don't believe there's any benefit in having that performance model. Having said that, having that performance model would certainly be beneficial in terms of analysing expected rutting behaviour of, of pavements in service, so for maintenance, for rehabilitation, those type of things. So I think there's benefits in having that model, uh, a deformation model, but it's not necessarily required for a pavement structural design perspective because it doesn't influence thickness. Didier, did you want to add something to that? No, definitely that's uh, not taken into account for the structural design, the thickness, and also uh, we have to bear in mind that it will be highly dependent on the temperature. And uh, at the moment, the temperature is managed through um, a weighted mean average pavement temperature, which is specifically calculated for an equivalence in fatigue and equivalent axles. Mm. So, um, using a model for permanent deformation of asphalt would be desirable, but there's more to it than uh, uh, definitely doing some testing. We need uh, to work out as well the equivalence in terms of uh, uh, temperature and its effect mm -hmm. as part of the structural design. Mm -hmm. That's great. So it's just one final question. It's the last one before we wrap up. Um, just around probably the use of the super pave. We've got uh, just sort of a comment that we need to consider um, N design or N initial for uh, different traffic levels, given we're changing to the super pave settings. You got any comments or thoughts on that one, Joe? Other than yes, we need to consider in terms of what it means for our for our mixes and our volumetric criteria. Like I mentioned, the, um, there is a separate project, Osroge project, currently underway that, that deals specifically with that, whereby they've tested a variety of different locally manufactured mixes using both the standard Aus, um, um, Australian standard and the SuperPave standard and, and looking at the, what, what would be an equivalent voids at the different compaction levels. Um, Jason, anything you wanted to add in terms of, I think it's more, you know, wait to see for the outcomes of that project. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Certainly in terms of the work that's been done locally with the um, super pave compactor, the mixes in Australia are much more compactable than what I guess the current super pave system tends to suggest. So there's certainly a bit of work to be done in that space in Australia. So um, yeah, I think it's a bit watch this space. Yeah, and, and again, just to reiterate, the intention wasn't to change our local mix designs to meet, you know, to be more similar than mixes being produced using super pave. It was, you know, these are just the new compaction standards and then what would be an equivalent void to achieve the same outcome type thing or as cycles, equivalent cycles in the super pave compactor to achieve a um, similar mix design outcome. That sounds great. I might just hand over to Ekaterina to um, to wrap up. Thanks very much for that, Ekaterina. Right. Thanks. And thanks, Joe, for the presentation. Thanks, thanks so much, everybody. Great presentation. Uh, I just have a couple of slides to finish the session. Um, uh, as you can see on the screen, we have uh, many webinars coming up in uh, the next few months. Um, for more information on um, all of the sessions and to register, please visit our website. Um, and as we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Um, take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, let us know what you liked or didn't like um, about the sessions and what suggestions you have for our future webinars. Once again, Today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording um, when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.